0: every team, every topic, everywhere. This is believe
1: I'm Allie Wolf, a TV news reporter taking on my biggest assignment yet motherhood. Get ready to feel inspired and connected as we explore the journey into mom life. This is the mom's calling podcast.
2: When we call children picky eaters or talk about them as being picky eaters, then we feed this self-identity that I'm a child who's a picky eater. I'm a child who doesn't eat blueberries. What we as parents need to do is give them the space to be explorers. We need to present them the opportunities and we need to leave it up to them what they do with it.
1: Welcome to another episode of Mom's Calling. You just heard from my awesome guest today. But before we get into her episode, a quick thank you for listening. This is episode 14. And if you listen to episode 10, all about self care, you know how meaningful this show is to me and how I am loving it. And if you are loving it too, please, please share it with a friend, someone who you know will enjoy these inspiring and empowering stories of other moms. Also, if you have an extra 10 seconds, please leave a review, it will really help me and help others find the show. With that, let's get to my guest, Haya Stern. She is a mom of three, an occupational therapist and feeding specialist. Haya, a super picky eater herself, is passionate about helping parents with everything feeding related, from introducing solids to mealtime behaviors and skills and resolving picky eating. She is a true expert on this topic, and when you hear her, that will be clear. We get really detailed in this episode too, not just about food, but also about the psychology behind feeding your kids. We discuss feeding babies, toddlers, and young children, the importance of family mealtime in embracing the mess and enjoying the process. We also discuss how you can create a positive association with food for your kids starting at an early age. Finally, we get into why you should never force your child to eat and how to get them to try new foods. Kaya talks about how She was never someone who dreamed about being an entrepreneur, but due to the state of the world, she was forced to go virtual and have her own business. I hope you learn a lot and enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hiya! welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I'm excited to be here. I'm really looking forward. Well, this is such a big topic and really a source of stress for, I think, a lot of parents. Let's start with your career background. How did you become a feeding specialist and how did this become your path? So I went to school
2: for OT. I graduated. I took my boards, the first in my class. I was super pregnant with my seconds by then. So that was quite an experience. And then I started working in early intervention and with children in schools. As I was working with these ages, I noticed that what was coming out as a very primary concern with many parents was that these children weren't eating well. So they were struggling with food. They weren't managing meal times; They weren't developing um, self-eating skills. And their eating habits were really not conducive to their growth and development. So I wanted to help these moms, but I realized that I had no tools. Besides for having no tools, I was and am a picky eater. So it's like, okay, I get it. I feel this. I hear this struggle, but like, I don't eat half the foods in the whole world. So like, how can I guide you through this? So I decided to really delve into this niche and I took a training, a very highly accra- acclaimed training um, that really reviewed the process of eating the process of learning about food um, um, what mealtimes should look like structuring mealtimes understanding how our minds and our bodies feel about food and it was so eye-opening to me personally and professionally and I was like this is it you know this is what I want to do
1: well that's super interesting. I mean food is such a big part of our lives and I think it's something that along with parenting, it's a universal experience. We all eat, it tells so much about ourselves and our culture and our habits. Mm-hmm. And with that, I think it starts super early. And so the introduction of foods can be super daunting as a parent and challenging for the child. Um what are your tips and your recommendations for the beginning and and introducing food in a way that is helpful for the child and maybe not so stressful for the parent because that's kind of goes both ways, right?
2: Yes, absolutely. So the whole basis of my feeding philosophy is that it's a relationship, right? There's always going to be an eater. So the child who's accepting the food and a feeder, you know, the parent or the caregiver adult who is offering the food and how that relationship plays out, especially early on can be so impactful on that child's, you know, development with food and feeding. So I would totally say for those moms of kids, you know, around six months or no pressure to start at six months, but let's say six months to a year that are introducing solids that the first and most important thing is to keep it fun and pressure free. So they like to say that food before one is just for fun. So I don't think it's just for fun. I agree. It's not the primary nutritional intake, but it is for skill development. It is for exposure. It is for experience. And as far as keeping it fun, I do agree with that because if children start off their early feeding with a negative association with mealtimes and food, they're not going to want to eat. They're not going to develop the skills that they need and there won't be any interest. So I would say starting with understanding if your child is actually interested in food versus mom's interested, therefore, baby must eat. So, what you want to see is is baby sitting upright? Are they looking for food? Are they reaching for food? Are they leaning forward and opening their mouth when it's being offered to them? I don't think that the method that parents use to feed their kids is so important. I think more the connection. And the following the child's cues for readiness and interest, that would be like number one. A lot of parents have this fear of a mess and constantly clean up as their babies eat. And this is cleaning up like their space and their personal bodies. And it's very intrusive and distracting. No grownups would want someone to scrape a spoon across our face, collect a little bit of saliva filled leftovers (sighs) and refeed it to us but we do it to our babies all the time. And I would recommend that should be the first thing for parents to
1: stop. With the mess. Yes. I think as parents, it's hard to just watch your baby, just make a huge mess and and see that there's very little food actually going in the mouth. So you would say just embrace the mess and just let it be.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. Enjoy it. I mean, it's such a great, positive food and sensory experience for your child. So really the work is on the caregiver to just let it go. Just love it.
1: Let it go. I love that. Something you touched on earlier was that it doesn't necessarily matter the method. And so I think what you're talking about is, do you do baby led weaning? Do you do purees? Do you do cereals? And I think there's a lot of conflicting thought, and that can add to the overwhelming feeling for parents of what do I do? So Do you have any recommendation or do you think it matters what parents choose to do or can they do a little bit of each?
2: Yeah, so I think um, modified baby led weaning is probably the closest to what I would recommend. Um, So there are a few specifications in baby led weaning that I don't agree with. I think it's fine for a baby to be spoon fed. I think it really teaches them that mealtimes are a social scene. Um, It gives them a lot of parent-child interactions, and it gives the parent a chance to really learn and follow the baby's cues, and then the baby learns to trust that they will only be fed if and when they are ready. Um, I also think that babies should and can eat purees. There's nothing wrong with them. They're most definitely not a safety hazard. Um, For babies who are early on in their skill development, they are by far the safest foods for them. If you don't want to blend it all up or don't want to do those baby jars, that's fine. You know, fork mash, home make it. Any method of food prep is great. You know, focusing on those fruits and vegetables, I would say, is the most important. Um, And then for the babies who are really interested and ready for table food, I mean, let them have at it unless it's clearly a choking hazard. Um, Babies can manage a lot more foods than people think. You don't actually need teeth to eat almost anything Things that are hard or need to be broken through, those require teeth. Things that are super tough and chewy like meats, those might require your teeth. Anything else that's either made into small pieces or very moist um, or breakable, easily breakable or mashable, um, those things are good for baby's first foods.
1: I want to tell you about a product I love. It is the Mule Baby Whiteboard, the easiest way for new parents and caregivers to coordinate baby care. You can log feedings, diaper changes, and sleep times. It is reusable. Just stick it to your fridge and start logging. There's also a twin version. Get 10% off your order on Amazon with the code MOMSCALLING. Enjoy. Are there any foods that you really like that are good foods for babies if they're developmentally ready to start solids? Like what are some safe options?
2: So fruits and vegetables are always your best bet. They're the least likely to create a food sensitivity or an allergy. Um, Also babies do have very immature guts. So I actually do caution parents to stay away from cereals and grains Not all babies have the enzymes necessary to break that down and it could lead to a lot of discomfort. In the field of fruits and vegetables, I would say anything that's fork mashable is a great start, either served as a puree or even give the baby in a stick shape so that they can hold it themselves. So a banana split into fours, um, a chunky slice of avocado, um, a big cube of sweet, um, sweet potato, any cooked vegetables are good. Um, any fruit, homemade sauces, so applesauce, berry sauces, even things like strawberries, if they're soft and ripe, are okay for babies. I personally found my baby to have a hard time with foods that are more watery um, and like chunky pieces like watermelon. He, he needed a few months, you know, older than six months to be able to really manage that. And then things that break off in big pieces that are hard, like apples, I would wait until baby's a little bit better at chewing.
1: I like that kind of rule of thumb of anything that can be matched with a fork is is probably a good option. So that's a really good thing to keep in mind. So with that, I wanted to talk about, you kind of touched on this as well, just kind of that ritual and what we can start teaching our children. Because it seems like, you know, even when they're under a year old, they can respond to the fact that we sit at the table when we eat and we have mealtime. So what can families do early on to really establish good food habits or maybe a good relationship with food?
2: Yeah, and you totally just touched on the number one they need to be included in mealtimes. I cannot stress how important family mealtimes are. And some people get all worked up. Well, nobody's home with my baby. Well, wait, that, that's a big problem. Why <laughs> is nobody home with your baby? Clearly someone is there. It might be a nanny, a grandparent, a, a babysitter, the dad, whoever it is, the older siblings. If someone is there physically responsible for the baby, that person can sit with the baby to share a meal. Now, if you are starting your baby on more purees or more baby, baby food, you're not necessarily going to want to eat that, but the more similar food that you can eat, maybe you're eating the same food prepared a different way, makes that connection between what older people eat and what baby eats. It makes that connection that we are sitting down to eat together. It gives that positive feeling. We're connecting. We are sharing a moment. We are sharing a family activity. And that's like really the most important thing for establishing a good relationship with food and meal times.
1: Yes. I think that it's also been, you know, for, for myself as a first time parent too, it's, it's made me think about what I eat and what is a well-balanced meal. So I think thinking about it that way and having those good routines, as you establish your family's practices and, and day-to-day schedules, what about when the baby just doesn't, or the toddler just doesn't eat anything. Um, Say you put some great options out there, some chicken, some veggies, some really good healthy foods, but what if they're just not eating any of it and you really want them to eat? Um, Should you keep offering different things or just make them eat what's there or just skip that meal altogether?
2: I don't believe we can make children eat. And I do believe that parents who try this will spiral their children into lifelong challenges with food and family mealtimes because they're starting them off with that negative association. They're also overriding their child's natural desire for body autonomy, right? We want to know that what goes into our bodies is our choice. I want to also elaborate for a minute that not all parents Recognize that they are making their children eat. If you do, here comes an airplane and your kid laughs and you shove a spoonful of food in their mouth, you are making them eat. They were not ready for that food. You are ignoring their readiness cues or their refusal cues. And that creates distrust. So we want to really step far away from that. We want to keep it, you know, really pressure free and encouraging. So If you are sitting there with your child eating, you're already modeling for them what it looks like to eat, what it looks like to eat a variety of food. You're showing them that all these different foods can be enjoyable. So they're learning just by observing. Then you also noted that you're offering them a few food choices and you're offering them some variety. So that's number two. The more variety that you offer, the more likely you're baby or toddler is to find foods that they do enjoy. And then you touched on something that we would call exposure. So oftentimes offering food might be just for exposure. So that means we're letting go of the expectations that our child will eat or will eat this specific food. And we're just doing our part. We're fulfilling our responsibility, which is to offer it. Because if we think about it this way, if we never offer our child a food, If they're never exposed to it, if it never comes onto their tray or their plate, how can they ever eat that food? It doesn't exist for them. So it's really about going back to what is the parent's role and what is the child's role.
1: For parents struggling to get kids to eat, Haya recommends meals, which include one highly preferred food that they'll usually eat, a food they'll sometimes eat, and a new food. She says this process can be tough for us parents, but we have to think about the psychological effects of our actions and our words.
2: When we serve a meal and we know that at least one of those foods our child is most likely to eat, at that point we say that we have really fulfilled our responsibility of making sure that there's at least a food they're most likely to eat and that the decision of if they eat, what they eat, and how much is really up to them. And we want to give children opportunities to explore this autonomy and to accept this responsibility on their own. And they really do learn this by having chances. And sometimes those chances mean that they might be hungry later. But if we never give them an opportunity to feel hungry, then they also can't recognize what satiation feels like. And that drive for satiation is what brings them to the table. It's what brings them to eat and possibly even to try new foods. So we really need to give them that opportunity to be offered a meal for it to be their choice if and what they eat for them to know that they might feel hungry after, and then for them to come to their next meal opportunity with more of a drive to eat because now they want the satiation.
1: Okay. So it's really educating them about food. And a lot of it isn't really about the food, but sort of about teaching them the process and how how we eat rather than exactly what we eat. How we think about our children and how we describe
2: them and talk about them, even when we think they're not listening, really impacts their behavior. And this is beyond, you know, mealtimes and beyond food. It's, it's in all areas. We kind of give them like a label and then they may choose to live up to that for good or so to say for bad, you know, or, or, or in a functional way or a dysfunctional way. And when we call children picky eaters or talk about them as being picky eaters or make assumptions like you're never going to eat that, like, are you kidding me? You're really asking me for blueberries? Like, I know you're just going to waste them. Then we feed this self-identity that I'm a child who's a picky eater. I'm a child who doesn't eat blueberries. I'm a child who's not even going to request a new food because I know I'm going to be ridiculed. So what we as parents need to do is give them the space to be explorers. We need to present them the opportunities and we need to leave it up to them what they do with it. There are specific strategies to help older children accept new foods. And I would say one of the key strategies is to get them involved in food prep. Because that gives them a pressure-free opportunity for that exposure. What happens a lot of times in kids' heads is that if they are willing to taste something, there's a lot of implied pressure that they're also going to eat it. And that might be too much for them, that expectation. And they might take a few steps back and, you know, refuse to touch the food or refuse to even have it on their plate because they're scared of this progression of tasting to eating, because there's a lot of pressure from their environment, usually from their parents. So when we work backwards, right? And we start with, you know, helping with food preparation, which involves touching the food, smelling it, seeing it frequently, serving it to others, you know, then possibly getting them to serve it to themselves. Now we're working down the steps and we're working our way up in a much more relaxed manner, that takes away that implied pressure that we're going to expect them to actually eat the food now in this moment. This way, we're giving them time to familiarize themselves and be more ready on their own, be more motivated on their own and interested on their, on their own in trying it.
1: Okay. Super good info there. And I want to talk about this idea of making food and eating a game because I'm going to call out my mom who is an amazing mom but as a kid we would be eating and I remember her saying oh who's in the clean plate club and I think a lot of parents do this and don't realize what they're doing so are these games are they damaging to kids you know what is a better way a better approach of making food and mealtime fun without making it feel pressure or or like you're being forced to eat quick break to talk to you about planners specifically the baby steps printable planners on etsy which come with checklists to keep you organized every step of the way from pregnancy and baby showers to postpartum and mom life there's even a planner for recipes and meal prep they are simple fun and affordable check out the baby steps shop on etsy and use the code mom's calling for 15% off
2: My mother totally one-upped your mother on that, except we were in the, like, you can't leave the table until you finish your plate, you know, club. So that wasn't a club any of us really wanted to be in. I do discourage parents from requesting that their children finish their plates. It's not the parent's responsibility to determine how much their children need to eat. That's their children's job. Make the actual act of eating fun and playful while still leaving the option, if, what, and how much they eat, up to them. And we do this by turning food into fun things. So like a piece of pasta can be a tunnel. And if you're having pasta and peas, the pea could be the car and we're going to have it drive through the tunnel. Now we might make the tunnel an extension of our mouth, and now we're driving the pasta through the tunnel into our mouth. And we're doing all of this by modeling or directing our children, kind of feeding them these like playful ideas but it's totally up to them, like if they'll do it and to what extent they'll do it. Other things that make food more fun is doing like decorating with food. So making like um, fruit faces on your plate, using things like songs, a super popular go-to activity with my early intervention kids was doing the wheels on the bus with food. So I take like a baby carrot and the mommy on the bus would go sha sha sha. I would take, you know, crackers like wrist crackers and the wheels on the bus are going round and round. Um, We would take any other stick-shaped food, even something like pretzels, and we'd make them the wipers. And what we're doing with that is we're bringing the food items closer and closer to the mouth, and then closer to, you know, kissing, licking, putting in your mouth, spitting it out, taking a bite, spitting it out, taking a bite, chewing and swallowing, which would be our end goal. It's fun, it's playful, it's engaging, and you're in, again, a pressure-free way, bringing that food closer to your mouth.
1: Haya believes it's important for kids and adults to eat mostly the same meals at mealtime. Some of her go-tos are roast chicken and potatoes, rice or quinoa, pasta, veggies like peas, carrots, and green beans, or even pizza, grilled cheese, PB&J, yogurt, and fruit. She says it's important not to sneak new foods into meals.
2: So my kids really like meatballs and spaghetti. When I wanted to add a little bit, you know, more variety, so I put a little bit of shredded carrots into the meatballs. Now, here's the other key. I didn't hide them in the meatballs. They were A, very apparent. B, I told the kids, I'm trying the new meatball recipe. These have shredded carrots. It adds a very slight change in color and almost no change in flavor. So they know exactly what to anticipate. And they also can start to learn about shredded carrots in the context, you know, of cooked into meatballs. Um, and the meatballs was the food that they were already enjoying. If a parent isn't at the point where they can make a change like this, they might need to offer some meatballs with shredded carrots and some regular so that their children have that choice. And in this case, they would just be focusing on exposure. One other thing that I would say about a dinner like meeples and spaghetti, for example, is you can try meeples and different pastas that are easier for younger kids to eat. Spaghetti is super tricky. And sometimes kids won't eat it simply because it's too much work and they don't think it's worth it. Other things they can do is play around with seasonings, you know, changing sauces, changing the sides that a main dish is served with. For a child and for a family, any small change that you make, you can consider like a new dish, you know, or a new dinner. For me, it's about like, let's start with the base food. How can we get the kid to be interested in it? And then we can look at changes we can make both for more variety and for higher nutritional value.
1: Okay. Awesome. Now I kind of want to shift and talk a little bit more about having your own business and how you balance that number one, and how you have shifted that business during COVID when everything went virtual. So I'd love to hear about kind of your progression in that way. So
2: it really all tied in. It was very timely, but I was getting a little burnt out with OT. So I started really thinking about shifting to a private practice. Where Parents would come to me where they would be motivated. They would be paying. They would have the desire and the commitment to really make this work. But I really didn't know the first thing about starting a business, I was petrified in my entire life. I have been known to say that I will never, ever have my own business. I will always be happy working for someone else. And then COVID hit and we were like locked down, you know, from that first week, therapy in person closed down completely. It shifted virtual in a matter of days. And I was like, okay, if I could do this for the agency, if I could do this with the kids who I'm working with now, I could do this for my private clients. So I started a very slow process to building my business and I had help from several friends who had already established established businesses. Instagram played a huge role in it. That was like my first big learning curve and I was really nervous to keep pushing myself and like you know worried that people wouldn't be interested and obsessed with checking my likes, you know, and my insights. Um, I had to hire people to teach me Instagram, especially Instagram for business and just about, you know, using a business model in general. Clearly, I have discovered a passion for this business. So that really gets me through the day to day. I use my strategies on myself. So I feel very confident advertising that they work. That's helped, you know, me get through when I feel down. What's hard about it is that it is very slow. And I do feel that I'm at the point where I'm investing a lot and the returns are slower, but I believe in it. So I look for every opportunity to get my information out there. I know the parents need the help and I I want to help them and I can.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's so interesting how this period, this COVID period has really been a forcing factor for a lot of parents of who have been thinking about, oh, maybe I want to go off on my own and do this. And it really forced it. So I'm wondering, what's the biggest thing you've learned throughout this experience of having your own business and being off on your own during COVID? You know, what's the biggest lesson that's been beneficial for you?
2: Really, the concept that so much could happen virtually was a big aspect. Um, I realized that it especially makes sense since I'm really working with the parents. I don't treat children directly. It also gave me access to people outside of my state, outside of my traveling distance. So these kind of things that, you know, just came up through this, this experience that we've lived through. And I guess just normalizing, like people utilizing services virtually. And then, of course, a lot of platforms popped up to help people advertise their businesses and since instagram is universal anyways you know people all around the world really did have access to my content and to reach out to me and I'm able to provide the service to anyone anywhere because it's all virtual.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's been kind of an amazing progression with this virtual world and it's become so normal. I mean, here we are in two different parts of the country recording together and I think it's incredible. At the end here, I want to get to some of our quick questions and I would love to know the best and the worst advice you have heard. And this could be about feeding and in feeding kids or just about parenting in general?
2: The worst advice I have ever heard for feeding kids is just sit them in front of a video screen and they're going to eat. Yeah, and no. So mm-hmm. that doesn't work and it comes often from pediatricians. And that's really sad for me to hear.
1: With that, how do you like to take care of yourself? What do you do if you get some free time away from your three kids and, <laughs> um, and your husband? How do you take care of yourself?
2: So I want to say reading. I'm a huge bookworm. I used to read several books a week. Outside of that, I like a good show. I love anything about pregnancy, birth, babies. So like call the midwife. I'm here for that. I like
1: to swim. I like the occasional manicure. Okay, perfect. The last thing here is just to let the audience know where they can find you if they want to get your services or just to get in touch with you.
2: Okay, so primarily my Instagram page, which is eaters and feeders, or you can search my name, Chaya Stern, that's actually spelled C-H-A-Y-A, and the last name is S-T-E-R-N, Um, I have a website launching very soon. That's going to be eatersfeeders.com. And you can also email me at Chaya at
1: eatersfeeders.com. Perfect. Well, Haya, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, I want to hear from you. Send me an email to momscallingpod at gmail.com. If you like the show, be sure to rate and review this podcast. See you next week for another episode of Mom's Calling on the Believe Network.